All right. There you go. As we, uh, as we gather each Sunday, um, we want our focus to be on the beauty of the message of the gospel. This amazing way that God has shown his love to us through Jesus. And, and specifically this year, we want to see how the gospel, this message of the gospel, affects everything in our lives. And, and we're doing this by reading different passages of, and sections of Scripture together and learning from them. And there's no better place than the words of Jesus himself. And we've been listening in as he is standing on a hillside and he's teaching a large group of people about why he's come and what his kingdom is all about. And what he shares as we listen in and what he shares is so radically different than the way things are. We've called this series Upside Down. Uh, this morning we're going to dive into a section of Jesus' teaching that without the gospel, it can be confusing, it can be discouraging, or even overwhelming. It, it sometime, sometimes it is viewed as a list of to-dos in order to get right with God, and failure to live up to these can leave us with feelings of guilt and shame. Or, on the other hand, if we do happen to live this way, again, without understanding the gospel, we can become self-righteous or filled with pride. And last Sunday, we looked at what Jesus said leading into this section, and we talked about how Jesus's purpose and coming wasn't to get rid of the law. He came to fulfill the law, and we looked at two different ways that Jesus fulfills the law. One of those is just the fact that Jesus himself fulfills the prophecies that we read about in the Old Testament, that he fulfills God's plan as it's seen in the different ceremonies and in the, in the different rituals and in, in the different ways that, that God worked and moved through the stories that we read in the Old Testament. We see that the Old Testament actually points us to Jesus. He fulfills that. But we also talked about the fact that Jesus fulfills the law because he does what the law cannot do. He saves us. You know, keeping the law could never save us. It reveals our failure to live up to the standard of God. It reveals our sin, and because, our, because of our sin, we deserve death. But Jesus, through his death on the cross, pays the debt we owe for our sin, and he restores our relationship with God. And when we put our faith in Jesus alone, we stand before God forgiven of all of our sin, the sins that we've done and the sins that we may still do are all covered by the sacrifice of Jesus. And the verse that we looked at last week in Romans where Paul writes that there is now no condemnation for those who are in, who are in Christ Jesus, that's what he's talking about. But what Jesus says next is stunning. And maybe not as stunning to us as it would have been to this crowd of people who are listening. 
This is a Jewish crowd and probably has Jewish leaders, religious leaders in it. And, and he says this in Matthew 5, verse 20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And my guess is when this crowd heard it, you probably heard an audible gasp. And here's why. Because no one kept the law like the scribes and the Pharisees. In fact, in one of Jesus' interactions that you read about later in the book of Matthew, Jesus talks about the fact that they tie, they give 10% of all of their spices. Can you imagine that? Like, who does that? Who counts out 10% of their spices and gives it? And so, Jesus is saying that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And I think what we see here is Jesus is making two points simultaneously. The first is about the scribes and the Pharisees themselves. When you read about all of the different interactions that Jesus has with this group of religious leaders, his harshest criticism about them is the fact that they are all about appearing righteous. They, they follow the letter of the law so they can look good and they can look down on others. In the same passage I just referred to in Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus says this, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. In other words, what he's saying is you have kept the letter of the law, but you've entirely missed the spirit or the purpose for the law. I think the second point that he is making here simultaneously is this, that Jesus, um, and it has to do specifically with the phrase he uses, your righteousness. This idea of righteousness as used here is this idea of how we have a standing or not a good standing with God. It's about whether or not you are in a good relationship, you have a right standing with God. Jesus is describing here is if it solely depends on what we can do or how good we can be, we can never be good enough. Romans 3, 10 and verse 20 says this, none is righteous, no, not one. And then it goes on to say, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. In other words, made right with God in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We, we can't earn our way into a restored relationship with God. And we can never be good enough to be right with God. That's why Jesus came. And that's the message of the gospel. But I really want us to hear this this morning. While the gospel is a set of truths to understand and believe, it cannot simply remain just a set of beliefs. The, the gospel creates an entire way of life. 
We can't limit it to something that we just look at. It is really something that we look through. The gospel is the lens through which we need to view everything. That that is what Jesus is going to do in these next verses that we're going to read. Showing what life shaped by the gospel looks like. But before we start, there's so much we could unpack in each of these six areas of life and relationships, and I'll only be able to touch on each one. But today, right after this service, we're going to offer something we call dialogue, which basically is an opportunity to have a conversation. It's a place that you can bring whatever questions you have, if you want to make comments, for us to listen to one another, because so much of what we do, so much of the delivery within the church today is a monologue, somebody talking at you, and we wanted to create a place where we could have a conversation. And so that's what this is. Even if you just want to come and listen, um, you can get up and leave anytime you want, but this is just a place, an environment where you can have a conversation, we can talk with one another about these things. So I just want to make that invite, let you know that that's coming. So as we read through each section, please keep two things in mind. Each of these six areas are about our relationships with one another. How Jesus came to restore relationships to the way that God had originally designed them to be, not by rule keeping, but because of what he has done for us and the transformational work of the Spirit in us. The second thing is this, there's a pattern that you'll see in these six different areas. You're going to see Jesus said, you have heard it said, or it has been said, and this includes the law and some interpretations of the law. But then he'll follow with, but I say to you. And this is more than just something that Jesus is saying. This is a revelation of what he is going to make possible through the cross. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 5, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. He begins, you have heard it said that To those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid every last penny. Jesus begins just generically with every relationship, with all of our relationships, And he states what the law says about these relationships, that we're not supposed to murder one another. But but because of what Jesus has done on the cross, he makes it possible to get to the root of what causes relationships to break down in the first place. And it's not anger. Anger isn't the root. It's a symptom of something even deeper inside of us. At the root, anger flows from self-preservation or or this idea of trying to look out for ourselves. And it's stirred up by either pride or fear. 
Let, let me give you a very practical example that maybe, maybe you can relate to. You're driving on Interstate 95 and somebody cuts you off. And typically, our response is anger. And it's usually expressed in a few choice words, perhaps a hand gesture, or we radically alter the way that we were just driving towards that other person. Why do we do that? If we take time to reflect on what caused the response we had, we'd realize that underneath the anger, underneath that response, the root was an attempt for us to look out for ourselves. Because either we thought we had the right to be where we were, and that person took our place, that's pride, or we thought the person may have harmed us in some way by their driving, that's fear. And many times when we try and deal with anger, we just want to stop being angry. It's kind of like when you see a dandelion growing up in your front yard and you go up and you're like, you know what, I'm just going to pull that little green and that, that yellow flower right up and you just pull the green and the yellow. What's going to happen about a day later? There's going to be another dandelion, right? So when we try to deal with anger by just like putting a counting system in place, I'm just going to count before I blow up, or we replace it through other activities or, or outlets, or, or we try to get more sleep, but we're still angry because all we're doing are dealing with the symptom. But we never dig out the root. And be, because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, he frees us from needing to try to preserve or look out for ourselves because he has permanently preserved us in him. And what I mean by that is this. He fought the ultimate battle for us between our two biggest enemies, which were sin and death, and he won. He defeated both. And because of him, we are no longer our own. We are his. He, he is the one who defines us, not someone else's opinions or actions. He has given us a new identity, one that can never be taken away. And he is now ruler of our hearts. And we can step off that throne. But this is a process, and the work the Spirit does in us to free us from the need to rule our own heart and, continue, and continues to remind us about whose we are. There's a second piece to this that Jesus addresses, not just if, if we are offended by somebody, but if, some, if we've offended somebody else, he talks about, because it's going to happen. And what he says here is that we are the ones to initiate the process of reconciliation. And there's a priority to that. He says, even if you're there to worship and you realize that, you're supposed to just drop what you're doing and go and be reconciled. And there's an urgency to this. If someone's on the way to court, you need to take care of that right then and there. As soon as we become aware of it, we are the ones to initiate the reconciliation. And why is that? Because Jesus initiated with us. He first loved 
goes on in Matthew 5.27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members that, than that your whole body go into hell. So Jesus is talking about another specific thing that's mentioned in the Ten Commandments, the law, and this is adultery. And Jesus speaks into what leads to adultery, which is this idea of lustful intent, which is basically the idea of desiring someone who is not our spouse physically. And just like with anger, there is something deeper happening in us that leads us to lustful intent. One of the effects that sin had in us is the fact that it twisted our desire. It twisted our desire from God and it twisted our desire for ourselves, toward ourselves. And so self-satisfaction or this idea of wanting to please ourselves, to pursue things that make us feel good regardless of the consequences. And the biggest problem with pursuing what makes us feel good specifically in the area of sexual desire, is it always leads us to a poor imitation of what God originally intended for that desire. We exchange, we exchange an empty pursuit of lust for the real pursuit, which is love. Jesus demonstrates by, by the example of his sacrifice on the cross, that love isn't about something that you get that fills your desire to satisfy yourself, but is rather it's found in something that we give. Love is never about self-satisfaction or pleasing ourselves, but it's all about putting the need of the other above our own, just like Jesus did for us. God designed sexual intimacy to be an expression of this kind of love experienced within the context of marriage. Which leads us to what he says next in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus addresses what had become the teaching of two different groups of rabbis, these Jewish teachers. And there was one school that said, you can only get a divorce in this circumstance, and there was another group of, peop of, of these teachers that said, you can get divorced for any reason you want. Like if your wife burns a toast, you can divorce her. And Jesus speaks into this, and Jesus is, again, he's come to establish his kingdom as God originally intended things to be. The covenant relationship of marriage was designed by God to last for the lifetime of those who made the commitment. And this marriage relationship is to be a reflection of what Jesus has done for us, his church. The church is the bride of Christ. He loved us so much that he laid down his life for us. He is ours and we are his 
forever. So it is for us in the marriage relationship. We set aside, we lay down our wants, our needs, our desires for the sake of our spouse's wants, needs, and desires. And when both spouses do this, it produces an unbelievably beautiful and fulfilling relationship that reflects Jesus' love for the church. Matthew 5.33 Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. Let what you say be simply yes or no. More than this comes from evil. And Jesus is speaking into this weird mix of a practice that it had. It kind of took a combination of tradition and law and kind of meshed them together in this weird thing because what was happening is people were making promises, but they were adding to them. And they would make promises to somebody and then they would put it on something else. And and depending on what they put that promise on, they made that commitment to, changed whether or not that promise was binding on that person or not. And and let me just use an example of this. For, For example, if you made a promise by Jerusalem, it wasn't binding to that person. But if you made a promise through, uh, toward Jerusalem, it was binding. So if you didn't know those rules and someone said, I promise by Jerusalem, they couldn't be held to their promise. And Jesus says, just do what you say either you will do or you won't do and stick to it. Again, this is a reflection of what he has done for us. We are wholly dependent on the promise of the cross and the resurrection. We, we put our faith in him, and we believe that Jesus is the ultimate promise keeper, that he will do, that he has done and will do what he says that he has done and will do. Matthew five thirty eight. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus is speaking into this legal concept that existed then called Exact retribution, which is exactly what it sounds like. Like you can do to that other person exactly what's been done to you. But Jesus' sacrifice, the message of the gospel, Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf reminds us of his mercy towards us. That he has forgiven us a debt that there was no way that we could ever pay. And then he calls us to forgive as we have been forgiven by him. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was one done out of complete selflessness. It wasn't something that he had to do. It was something that he chose to do, even knowing that there would still be people who would reject him. 
Jesus' Jesus' example of forgiveness and sacrifice reshapes us and it reminds us of how much has been done for us. And so he lays out these responses. This idea of resisting an evil person, that Greek word for resist is found in other places in the, in the New Testament, usually in, in the context or translated as some kind of a verbal opposition. So if you have somebody that's like verbally attacking you, what Jesus is basically saying is don't, don't attack them back. Regardless of what they say about you or how they disagree or are, don't just, just don't engage. Don't attack them back. And then he goes even further and basically he says, hey, if you get hit on the right cheek, which in that time was one of the biggest insults because basically it meant that someone smacked you with the back of their hand, which was a huge insult. Jesus says, hey, just turn the other cheek. He says, if somebody, like, sues you, let them have more than what they're asking for. In this case, basically saying, let them have everything that you have. The tunic and the cloak was basically the entire outfit that somebody would wear in that day. Basically saying, you let them have everything. Just let them have it all. This one mile, two miles, the Roman soldiers could conscript a, a, a Jewish... Um, male, female, to walk with them, carry their pack for one mile, no further. And Jesus said, hey, if you get conscripted into doing something like that, you walk two miles with them. Don't refuse somebody in need and who wants to borrow from you, give to them. Because Jesus frees us from this need to react when somebody wrongs us. He frees us to love that person rather than living under the burden of needing to get even with them. Which is what he says next. Matthew 5, 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? He says it's more than just loving people who love you or people that you like or people that are near to you. He's basically saying that we're supposed to love those who are against those who are our enemies. Why? Because we were enemies of God. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. He loved us first. And because of the cross and what Jesus has done, he has freed us from the chains of hatred. He's freed us to love others as we have ourselves been loved. Matthew 5, 48 kind of wraps this up, and then he says this. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I don't think that Jesus is talking about moral perfection or following these things that he's just said perfectly. The Greek word that's translated perfect here is the Greek word teleos which in a lot of other 
places in Scripture, it is not translated perfect, but it's translated complete. The, the final verse in this section is referring back to the section we just read where the, the father makes the sun rise on the, evil and the and on the evil and the just, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. In other words, he is a father who loves completely. We have a father who so loved the world that he gave his own one and only son. We have a father who loved us even when we were his enemies, who loves us even when we still mess up. And Jesus is telling us that the undercurrent of all he has just said is to love others as we have been loved by the perfect and complete love of the Father. Nothing more and nothing less. Here's another way for us to look at this this morning. When Jesus died on the cross to make a way for us to be restored back into a right relationship with God, he doesn't stop there. Our, our reconciled relationship with God then begins to provide a way for us to have restored and, and reconciled relationships with others. Imagine how different our lives and the lives of the people that we interact with will continue to be when, as we allow the transforming, transforming work of the Spirit in us to shape us into people who live like this. This is what the gospel does. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a God who loves us, who first loved us even when we were your enemies. Thank you for Jesus who died for us, willingly died for us. Father, thank you for showing us the way. Thank you for continuing to shape us to be more like you through your spirit. And Father, I pray that you would just continue to work as only you can so that we can live in the way that you have called us to live, that we can love like you have loved us. Father, we need you. This is not something we can do on our own, but we need you. We need you to shift that in us and continue to shift that and refine us, Father. It's what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.